0: Amen. Hey, this morning we are going to resume our course of study in 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to pick back up in 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, not familiar with how to use one, then you can find the table of contents. This is going to give you a heads up into how to find the book of 1 Corinthians. The large numbers are going to be chapters and the small numbers are going to be verses. This morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. I want to start somewhere different. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's in uh, Athens in Acts 17, has an opportunity to meet uh, with some different philosophers, and he's engaging them in conversation and talking to them about, uh, about the gospel and the, the central tenets of the Christian faith. And he's rolling along with them and, and having conversation with them and then you come to verse 32 of chapter 17, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again on this. See, Paul reached kind of the, the central point of, of Christianity in one of these teachings that depicts and, and, and communicates to us that, that our life here on earth is not the end of our existence. And so it, it, Christianity doesn't teach some disembodied existence in heaven. It doesn't teach that you die, and then you get to heaven, and you float along on a cloud, and you're, a, you're an angel with an oversized diaper, and you sprout wings. It doesn't teach that. It doesn't communicate that in any way, shape, or form. Christianity teaches that at the end of all things, God is going to come down, and he's going to recreate earth, and he's going to recreate heaven, and it's in that existence, that that new heavens and the new earth, that we will live with God in resurrected bodies. And that's, the, that's the, what the Bible teaches. It communicates that from beginning to end, that this is the reality that we're waiting for and looking towards, not just that we would live in heaven for eternity, but that we would live resurrected lives embodied, that we'll have an embodied existence, that we're not just kind of floating along Uh, which I guess sounds nice in some ways, but we'll have an embodied existence. And and that's the reality that it seems like the church there in Corinth was really struggling with, was the the possibility that they would be resurrected. They created in their minds uh, kind of this duality of existence, this split existence. You have two parts to it. On the one hand, they said we have the soul, and we're totally comfortable with the soul, and we reckon that the soul is eternal, that it's good, and, and that there's nothing bad in it. But on the other side, we have the body, and the body is temporary, it's broken, it's, it's just not good. And, and when we die, we shed ourselves of that which is not good, and we're left only with that which is good. We're left with the soul. And so Paul, to that, brings in and wants them to understand and wants us to understand that it is the centrality of the resurrection in which we reside and in which we have hope. Notice then that in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, he goes right at the heart of what their issue is and right at the heart of what this issue creates as a significant problem in Christianity. He says, Now, if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead in essence if if the sum of our preaching has taught that jesus has come back from the dead he's been raised from the dead he asks this question how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead so it seems like they're totally at home and okay with the fact oh yeah jesus he was he was totally resurrected me no no, you see, you, you misunderstand, and they kind of go back to this argument over and over and over again. But what Paul wants us to understand is there's no separation. Like, we can't split this out and say, resurrection is totally fine for Jesus, but, but that's, not, that's not the way, that's not the course, that's not how these things are going to be entered into. Now, before Paul gets to verse 12, he has verses 1 through 11. He's building a case for the resurrection. He's building a case, so let's review this uh, for a moment. Paul opens it up and he says now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain Now it's important to note that what Paul doesn't say is I'm running to inform you of a new thing. I'm running to let you know this new thing that you have to believe. How does he write it there? He says I would remind you He's helping them to remember something that has always been the sum and substance of their teaching. It's always been the sum and substance of of their belief, and it has always been the reason why they're able to gather in the name of Christ. I want to remind you of something. This is the gospel that I preach to you. Now listen to the importance of this. He says, I preached it, you received it, you're standing, and you're being saved in it. I preached it, you received it, you are being saved in it, and you're standing in it. Now what is this paint of? This paints a picture for us of the solidness of their faith. Their faith isn't tossed to and fro. It's not hither and on. Their faith is solid. This, there is some substance to what they can believe. And on the basis of the resurrection, they are able to stand safe, secure, and solidly. This is what he's telling them. This is what he's communicating to them. You see, because I, I think we have this tendency for whatever reason, to see our faith as being ah, just kind of not not wishy-washy per se, but, but there are moments when we feel certainly that it is more safe and more secure than other moments. And what are we basing this on? Largely, we're basing this on our experiential response to different things in our life. So if our lives are going really well, we feel great, we feel close to God, we feel like he's blessing us in some sense, and we find no great difficulty saying, I'm standing firm, I'm standing secure, I'm resting on the everlasting arms, or whatever hymn lyrics you want to pull this from. But what Paul is communicating is that thing which we are saved by, that thing which we stand in and hold fast to, is the finished work of Jesus. This is so incredibly important you will be tempted over the course of your life to have this back and forth wrestling and resting of your faith if the way you view your faith is always founded upon how you are responding to the gospel. This is just how it's going to be if, because you'll find that there are times in your life you're more faithful and times of your life that you're less faithful but if you will find the security of your belief and you're standing resting upon the finished work of Jesus, you will find that you stand firm the fantastic thing that Paul communicates to them is the understanding contained in there. You're standing firm and you will stand firm over the course of your life. This is what this verbal idea conveys. But still there's this issue of the resurrection. So Paul communicates, man, your faith rises and falls on the centrality of the resurrection. So let me move into a defense of it in 6 through 7. He says, for I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. This is the most important thing I could possibly tell you, and it's the most important thing possible that I was also told, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, there are a whole host of Old Testament passages whereby we might go to find that Christ had to die to be faithful, to live in accordance with the Scriptures, but this morning, for sake of time and brevity, let's go to one. Isaiah 53, 1-6. through six. Isaiah 53, 1-6. through six. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was upon him that the chastisement which has brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone we've turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That God saw fit in his sovereignty and in his infinite wisdom. On the basis of two things of his character. God is holy good and God is holy just. So a holy good God desires good things for his creation. A holy just God demands that unrighteousness, sinfulness must be punished. And so, from the beginning, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they entered into sin, and you and I, in in form and fashion, have joined with them in engaging in sinfulness, both in our hearts and in our actions, we both believe things about God that are not true, and we've acted in ways that display that we are rebelling against the moral and perfect rule and law of God. That in these things, that the justice of God Necessitated that he punish sin, and in this he raised up Christ his son to come on and to receive our punishment this right punishment that was due to come to us. And Jesus stood there and he took the punishment and took the penalty in our place, and all this in accordance with the scriptures, and all this foretold hundreds of years prior to his coming. But Paul's not done. He says, this was according to the scriptures, but also that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Jesus, quoting the book of Jonah, responded to some Pharisees who were demanding a sign in Matthew chapter 12. Says some scribes and Pharisees were saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. In essence, we want to see your teaching validated. Like you're saying these things, we want to believe you, but we really need to see some more proof. Jesus answers and says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet of Jonah. And in Jonah 1.17, we read what had happened to him, and then Jesus summarizes. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth jesus at this point already prophesying and depicting how his death would be that he would die that he would be entered into the grave but that he would rise again and paul says all this in accordance with the scriptures now i want you to think that as paul writes this this is about 20 25 years removed from the resurrection it's about 20 25 years and so some of the people that he's getting ready to mention are still alive they're still engaging they're able to be accessed. And so Paul goes into and, and these Corinthians who are doubting uh, the resurrection and they're doubting the powerfulness of it. He says, then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. In Luke 23, you can read about him appearing to Peter. And you can read within the gospels about him appearing to the 12. And he says, then he appeared to the more than 500 brothers at one time. So there's also this, this account where the resurrected Jesus appears, he engages over 500 people at one time. Now, why is Paul driving at this point and saying, what's the importance of this? Well, Paul wants them to recognize this isn't some type of group psychosis. This isn't some type of uh, hallucinatory, imaginative event whereby the 12 said, you know what would be the coolest thing in the world? If we all got together and just said, he showed back up. If If we all got back together, I mean, Judas isn't here anymore, but if the 11 of us got back together and just said, he appeared to us, people would be like, oh my goodness, are you serious? Paul wants them to understand that the truthfulness of the resurrection doesn't merely rest on his appearance to these disciples, but that he also appeared to these 500, and then Paul puts the challenge back out to them. He says, and some of these brothers and sisters, some of them are still alive. In essence, go and talk to them. Go and probe them. Go and ask them, what was it like to meet with, to visit with the resurrected Jesus? What was it like to behold him? What was it like to touch him? What was it like to hear from him? He says, the resurrection is true, and the resurrection is what you stand in. The resurrection is what is holding you fast and keeping you secure and is saving you still. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then he brings himself in. He says, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul wants them to understand, look, the resurrection isn't really something I've heard about. It's not really something that I'm offering just a lot of thoughts on, but I've actually personally experienced the risen Jesus. He appeared to me, the most unlikely of all apostles. And so he goes in and describes why it is unlikely that he himself is an apostle. He says, from least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, you can read about in the early chapters of Acts, that he's speaking out against the church. That he thinks, he thinks that what he's doing is right. He thinks that what he's doing is righteous. And he thinks that he's on this mission from God to challenge and put down all of the Christians. And so he's out there, and Paul's holding the coats when the first Christian martyr, when Stephen stands up and begins to boldly proclaim faith in Jesus and what it is to follow him, Paul's there, and he says, stone him and stone him now. This is who he is. This is is why he can speak of himself being the most unlikely, being the most unworthy, and being untimely. Listen to what the transformative grace has done in the heart of Paul. Look at what the transformative power of the grace of God has done in in the heart of this one who cried out, kill him, stone him, and stone more. He says, but the grace of God has found me, and I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. The grace of God met the, the vile calls for killing and murder coming from the lips of Paul, and they arrested him on the road. And he surrendered himself to faith. And what a great encouragement. Outside of the miraculous intervention of God, none of us are coming to know Jesus. I think in some sense we we read an account like this, and it's so incredibly encouraging because some of us have, have mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, cousins, and friends who don't know Jesus, and the question lingers in our mind, could they come to know him? And we look at Paul and we say, anyone can. None of us are too far from the call of the resurrection, and in a moment... We can come to know him. So he appears to Paul, and Paul is is saying, Look, everything you've seen me, the all the work you've seen me pour out, it is the grace of God working in me, transforming me. Verse 10. So he brings it back to the argument. He says, Look, whether it was I or they, you heard the gospel and you responded to the gospel. So now he's gonna get into the heart of it. Now remember, you stand on the basis of the resurrection. You stand and are holding fast to the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that you too will rise from the dead. He says, listen, verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed from the dead, and he's just given the example of why, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? And in their minds, one doesn't impact the other. Christ can be raised, but we don't necessarily have to. So look what he says in verse 13. If there is no resurrection from the dead... If you and I stand no chance of being bodily resurrected, this is what he says, not even Christ has been raised. We can't separate the two. According to Scripture, according to Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if the dead have not been raised, if there's no shot at you and I being bodily resurrected, then not even Jesus himself has been raised. Now, if you're thinking ahead, you're probably thinking, well, that seems to be kind of, upping the game a little bit. It seems to be a radical intensification. It seems like Paul is really kind of upping the ante. And so on one hand, I could be wrong, but on the other hand, I'm dooming all of humanity. So he, he goes on. He says, listen, if, if they're not going to be raised, Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 14, if Christ hasn't been raised, these are there's two consequences. Our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, Paul, in writing to the church there in Corinth, had said, I came to preach the gospel. I didn't come to baptize anybody. He founded the church on his preaching. And this has really been the mainstay of his ministry. It's just kind of traveling and teaching, traveling and preaching, raising up Timothy, raising up Titus and others, and sending them out, teaching and preaching. And so this is what Paul wants them to understand. The whole endeavor that we've engaged in, the whole endeavor we've engaged in, it was absolutely worthless. If Christ hasn't been raised. If the resurrection isn't true, then everything we've engaged in, all the teaching, all the preaching, all the gospel proclamation, all of these things have been in vain. And let me add to this, your individual faith has been in vain. So they hear this and they think, On the one hand, it's just Paul and all these guys have wasted time, but when he brings it personally into me, he says that it is up to my personal belief in the gospel, my personal belief in the resurrection, and if I doubt that, if I believe that not to be true, then my faith, too, is empty and meaningless. My faith, too, is empty and meaningless. So Paul heads into this aside in verse 15. Verse 15. He says, look, reflecting back on me, reflecting back upon the people who are out teaching and preaching the gospel, that if this is true, that if our preaching is in vain, that Christ hasn't been raised, then we're even found to be misrepresenting God. Now what's he communicating here? Paul's saying, this is the message that we've said over and over and over again, that Christ has in fact been raised. And so if this thing isn't true, we're just a whole big group of sorry liars. We're just a whole big group of sorry liars. We're deceiving you. We're misrepresenting God. We're being false to the message that he's given us. Why? Because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And that's quite simply not true if Christ is not raised. Now, what does that mean? Well, he comes back to it in verse 16. He says, look, mirroring verse 13, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And then he gets to the heart of it. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now think about this. There is a way to believe in Jesus that has uh, no actual effect on you in the eternal state of your soul. There's a way to believe and to just kind of restrict its impact to you that can have terrific impact on the lives of the people around you. But actually has no eternal difference and no eternal impact. You believe, in essence, in the Jesus of kind of moral influence that that having believed in the idea of Jesus, and it is a terrifically powerful idea. That there was this man named Jesus, that he was horribly misunderstood, that he traveled around and he elevated women, that he elevated the poor, that he taught good works, that he taught gospel impact, that he sought to affect social justice, that he sought to do all these wonderful things, and then, misfortunately, he died at the hands who thought that he was entered into a power play. There is an opportunity to believe solely in that Jesus and be a phenomenal impact, both to the people in your lives and the people of this world you can absolutely do that you can absolutely believe in that jesus unfortunately unfortunately christianity depicts a decidedly different jesus he's not primarily concerned that you be a good person He's not primarily concerned that you you give charitably. He's not primarily concerned that you're having a positive impact on your kids and they have a good role model to look at. He's not primarily concerned with how you treat your neighbor. All those things are outworking of faith, but they are not in and of themselves the substance of faith. To believe in the Jesus of Scripture is to rest solely upon the resurrected Jesus he says if you don't rest on the resurrected Jesus your faith's not just in vain it is futile it is powerless it changes nothing and you're still in your sins now notice as Paul has gone through this and he's depicted all of these things he's never once never for a moment said that God is not good and God is not just And so the assumption that he's had going in in this whole argument is that there is a good and a just and a righteous God. And this good, just, and righteous God is going to bring to bear on wayward and lost humanity. And he's going to give to us a sound and decided verdict and judgment at the end of our lives. And how we will be found, innocent or guilty, depends upon our belief, and our adherence to the truth and the truthfulness of the resurrection. He says, man, if you disbelieve the resurrection, if you think this isn't true, if you think this isn't important, if you think this doesn't matter, then you are, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You are left with no way to have your sins atoned for. Listen. Listen, maybe all this is new to you. Maybe you didn't grow up in church and and, and you've not heard these things, and instead you're entering into this cosmic wager whereby you say, at the end of all things, God's going to look at my life, and he's going to radically evaluate it. He's going to place upon the, the scales of eternity all the good things I've done and all the bad things I've done, and, 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 and certainly, certainly while things for a while were headed bad, right now that they've shifted, I'm doing more good things. I mean, if that's the tenuous argument that you're hoping in, That's a scary reality that you're hedging in. And can I set you free? Can I put your mind at ease? It's already been finished. Not on the basis of future good works that you do. Not on the basis of future bad things you won't do. But on the basis of the one good thing Jesus did accomplish. He has been resurrected. Resurrected. He stood in the midst, he took upon the penalty and the punishment of your sin, and he invites you to come to know him. If this isn't true. If this isn't true, Paul tells us that all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have already perished. In essence, if, if, if the resurrection isn't true, then everybody who died at the time of Paul's writing and everybody who's died since, man, I hope they lived a good life because that was all there was. And that was all there was ever going to be. He gets into verse 19. He, he's kind of drawing to a close this idea of the impact of the resurrection. He says, If in Christ, so if in Christ Jesus we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, the New Testament teaches a decidedly, man, what's the most honest way to say this? It's kind of a bleak outlook for Christians. just like if you read through the New Testament, if you read the teachings of Jesus, it seems like what he's saying and what he's stressing over and over and over again isn't the best sales pitch you could ever enter into. He says to be a Christian, to, to unite yourself to Jesus, to be a decided follower, an obvious follower of Jesus, is to invite persecution, to invite difficulty, to invite separation from family, to invite... The idea that you would be a social pariah, an outcast, to align yourself with Jesus is not to align yourself with wealth and health and prosperity. It's just not. And there are a lot of hucksters for the gospel that, that paint these two things as being coterminous. They're always headed toward the same direction. We are here in this life to enjoy great riches and profound health. Some of the most uh, naturally miserable people I know, or who should be naturally miserable, have been Christians because they've experienced terrific difficulties. They suffer disease. They suffer heartbreak. They suffer the loss of financial fortune. They suffer the loss of loved ones. They suffer the loss of friends in as much as they stand for Christ. This is why Paul says, listen, listen. If it's in this life that we have hope only, you should feel sorry for Christians because they've absolutely bought into a lie that has cost them significantly. But according to the New Testament, according to the entirety of Scripture, it is not solely in this life that we have hope. If you believe in the resurrection, if you believe in the good work that Christ has done, even today, you stand in the hope of the gospel. I hope that when you encounter the difficult things of this life, when your friends abandon you, when your health fails you, when you lose your job, when things are terrible, you can say to yourself, in reality, on the basis of the resurrection, this is not best. He's going to remake heaven. He's going to remake earth. He's going to remake me. The resurrection of Christ is, is the, the power to hold me fast. It's the hope in which I stand. In this, all the difficulties of this life are absolutely worth it because the resurrection is true. They're absolutely worth it because the resurrection is true. Because the hope in the future of your resurrection is true. Man, if you're a Christian... You have cause for celebration over the fact of the resurrection. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you've not yet responded to the truthfulness of the resurrection, man, let me, let me show you what it looks like to stand with Jesus in the power of his resurrection. In a moment or two, we're going to have our, a couple of our elders down front. Let me ask that you would come forward and, man, we would happily talk to you in this time or some other time to walk you through the picture of the gospel, how you can respond to God's gracious invitation to be forgiven, to stand secure, to stand steadfast in the hope that just as Christ has been resurrected, so too you can be resurrected. Christian, you have a terrific hope that you stand in. It is unaffected by the slings and arrows of this life. It is unaffected by the difficulties of this life because the resurrection is true. It finds validity in scripture. It finds validity in history because it is finding validity even in your life as you hold fast to his true confession. Let us be a people who call men and women to the truth and reality of the resurrection in the way we live our lives and in the gospel we proclaim and in the gospel we call people to. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your gospel, for its truth, for its impact. Father, I pray that you would watch over us, that you would help us to stand fast in all things to the truthfulness of your gospel. God, I pray that you would help us in all things put forward, not our good deeds, not how great our life is, but how great our Jesus is. The Son of God who was crucified, put to death on the basis of our sins, was raised to life so that we might come to new life in Him and have a hope for a resurrection. So God, help us to celebrate that and I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who have yet to respond to your gospel's call. God, that you would confirm the truthfulness of the resurrection and that you would call them to know you and celebrate you as Savior and Lord. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.